Nick. Steve, how you doing? I'm all right. We're speaking remotely. We are. We're we're in full COVID lockdown. I know it's strange, isn't it? The world's coming to an end. We're witness to the rebirth of the the second phase of humanity. Do you think that's what it is? Like phase two? I think everyone's going to be different, man. I think the world's not going to be the same. I think people are going to look at the world a totally different way. If you can't go where you want to go, you can't escape. That's what's so weird about it. You can't just get on an airplane and go to Alaska because they've got it too. It's amazing, isn't it? Do you reckon there'll be two more epidemics and we'll get to phase four and then ants will take over the world? (laughs) The crab people will come down. Yeah. But um, yeah, it is interesting. Although I, I think I'm str- I'm quite lucky because I live in um, a country type area, right on the edge of the countryside, That's and right, the yeah. weather's been beautiful. And I'm working from home, so I don't have to commute. Normally, I have to commute for something like an hour each way. So I'm feeling chilled. You're quite enjoying I'm it. Chilled. I mean, I I, I is it like a I am quite for you. It's a little bit like that. It's very mellow. You've got to be careful. I've got to be careful. I get myself into a routine. But I've been doing lots of bike rides. Spring is in full spring. Nature is emerging from the winter. All of the animals are out and about. Deer are roaming the streets. A friend of mine saw a family of stoats the other day. Really? Yeah, peregrines are nesting on Salisbury Cathedral. The eggs are due next week. (laughs) I didn't realise this podcast was Spring Watch. I thought it was about science. It is. It's like Nick's own personal spring watch. I heard my first chiff chaff at the start of March. Oh, wow. It's now April. I saw my first swallow just last week. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're, we're at the end of the uh, third season of the Science Shed, Nick. So I thought we'd do this kind of, we'd ring each other up over the interwebs and have a little discussion. How do you, how do you feel about that? I think that's fantastic. Yeah. I think it's good. Yeah. I mean, we've got to, we did six episodes. Yeah. And this, we're just introducing the final episode in our yeah. latest batch of of six. And of course, we recorded those in the dim and distant past in phase one. Do you remember phase one? Phase Steve? one of humanity. Yeah, this is our phase first podcast post phase two. Yeah, we're in interphase. Interphase. The interphase. <laughs> yeah, yeah, ready for phase two. But um, uh, yeah, it was great and uh, it was wonderful, wasn't it, Steve? I particularly enjoyed the last series because we had the fantastic Eleanor in with the. We in with do. So Eleanor now has left the the sunny climes of the UK and returned to her uh, antipodean past of a new position da- down under in Melbourne, I think. She's hanging out with Bruce, mate. She's out there with Bruce, drinking some tinnies, Forex, mate. Yeah. So, so I think we just wanted to take you just started the beaches down there in Sydney as well. Bondi's <laughs> open again. Yeah, well, when she moved back, her whole country was on fire, and we were kind of, you know, you know, I thought that was pretty bad. But, you know, well, all these of... things are consigned to dim and distant history, aren't they? Indeed, indeed, indeed. Yeah, so I think we just wanted to take this opportunity to thank Eleanor for everything she did for the podcast to kind of spice it up a bit and to quiz us, to pit us against each other. Um, and It was great. And to help us with fantastic. all of the editing. That was a fantastic addition. So thank you very much, Eleanor, for that. I did. I enjoyed the quizzes. I enjoyed all of the postdoc soapbox. And yeah. I enjoyed Eleanor's extremely insightful comedic interjections um, <laughs> to stop us sounding so pompous and irritating. Yeah. But now, luckily enough, Nick, now we are free from these uh, constraints of not being allowed to sound pompous or, or um, irritating. And we can go on to talk a little bit about science in this little final edition. What do you say? Oh, well, yeah, let's do that then, shall we? Science Shed! We're in the Science Shed!
Bunsen, Dolly, Internal, Why do we need Petrick, Oscar, Isaac, Transplanting, COVID crisis. There's a lot of science. There's a lot of science. There's a lot of science. I would say too much. Quite difficult to sift through. There's a lot of science. Some of it's to do with viruses. Some of it's to do with um, respiratory biology, lung infections. Yeah. Some of it's to do with epidemiology, and some of it's just scandal, Steve. <laughs> scandal. Can I say, can I take a guess as to the ones you're most excited by? <laughs> well, there's a lot of I've been intrigued and interested by um, the whole because initially the government had this uh, herd immunity approach. That's yeah. what they were pursuing. The idea that we should kind of control the spread of infection. So not necessarily prevented entirely, but sort of control how quickly it went in the population so that people became infected. Some people died, of course, but then you'd get to develop some kind of sort of herd immunity. So people had crashed. So the, the idea there is that if I go out and get COVID-19 and then I'm, I'm immune to it, so I don't have to worry about spreading it because I'm already immune to it. Is that the idea? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so this idea and the people who are advising the government, the, the main person is of is who people have heard of probably by now is Neil Ferguson, isn't he? He's a chap at Imperial College epidemiologist, extremely yeah. well respected, highly intelligent guy. Um, <clears throat> but he's not been without his detractors. Yeah, a lot of everyone, time, everyone's turned into a bit of an epidemiologist, haven't they? Everyone's gone, well, I look at graphs for a living, I can tell you where that graph's going. Yeah, my general feeling, my general feeling on these things is that the people who've got where they've got because they're pretty good at doing what they're doing yeah, and often these teams like the sage team is not just there's lots more people than just him and his team in it and we have to to some extent, extent trust them that they will make wise decisions that's that's my kind of starting viewpoint however there's been some debate in the academic literature as well about mm. whether or not and i don't know whether you remember there was a study that was released on on one of them preprints so just for people who don't know, there are published papers which get peer-reviewed by often two, three, four, five experts before they're published, and then they get published in a scientific publication. Mm. But nowadays, there's increasingly um, what people do is they release their results before they've been peer-reviewed on what's called a preprint server. So this allows people to see recent data and to critique it themselves before it's officially published. So later on, it's published in a journal. So that's good because you get your results out quickly, but it's bad because it's um, it hasn't really been hasn't been yeah. screened. Yeah. Whatever you think about peer review, it provides another layer of kind of um, <clears throat> focus and control on what's published. Anyway, so this group in Oxford, led, led by Sinetra Gupta, they're a team of modelers, epidemiologists at the University of Oxford, and they basically offered a, um, a competing viewpoint about the number of people who were likely to have been in, infected. And it was and they, they think it was more or less? They were saying, well, they provided lots of different um, perspectives. So they changed, they tinkered with their numbers like modelers do with different mm. parameters. And if you change one of these values to a smaller number, it meant that, you know, you could have a lot more people infected in the population, but the mortality rate when you get it is comparatively lower. Yeah. And they were saying that may be true when Pirola may be taking too much of a prudent approach. You can understand. That wasn't really what they were saying, but that's how it was picked up in the press. Fine. But you can and understand that, like, as modelers, and particularly when people's lives are at risk, you have to be a conservative with some of these estimations, right? Because some of the parameters you don't know. 
you just have to guess, right? You know, the probability of people encountering each other in a lockdown situation, there's no data on that. You just have to make an estimated guess upon that and then refine that. But And, and if you've got to set it, set that dial too high or too low, you probably want to set it a bit too low because, you know, you don't want people to die based upon yeah. the output of your, of your, of your uh, modelling. Anyway, the Oxford group were not necessarily disagreeing with any of that, but they just sort of said, oh, here's the sort of, you know, it could be this scenario, it could be that scenario. But it was picked up in the press as being actually up to a million people that may already had coronavirus. This was a long time ago now, so this yeah. was before probably. Anyway, so that was interesting. But what was interesting about it was that it turned into a bit of a, I wouldn't say a spat in the press, but there were people sort of offering differing viewpoints about who was right and who was wrong. But it's an actual fact they weren't really in that much disagreement with each other. Yeah. Anyway, there's a backstory to this. Oh, come on then. Love, love the dirt, don't you? Um, it's just quite interesting. It doesn't really reflect on the people who are involved today. But um, it turns out that there's a bit of a historical... Um, uh, there's a bit of a soap opera going back many years between Oxford and Imperial. Previously, the boss of Neil Ferguson um, at Imperial was a guy called Roy Anderson. He was a very senior government advisor in the BSE crisis, so, you know, yeah. mad cow disease, and yeah. also in the foot and mouth outbreaks. Yeah. That's so when Sir Dave King was the, the chief government advisor, right? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know, but he was certainly advised, Professor Roy Anson, he was certainly advising the government. Anyway, so kind of Neil Ferguson is someone who was previously working for Roy Anderson, basically, mm -hmm. a very senior epidemiologist. Anyway, when this Oxford paper was released, it sort of, it sort of rose a narrative that there was this competition or this antagonism from the Oxford group towards the Imperial group and that built up. Anyway, I got, I got, a, I've got a friend of mine who's a bit of a, uh, slightly a uh, bit on the global warming um not denial but skepticism front of right thing. okay a bit yeah. of a brex brexiter type right, okay. and, and he's obviously reads a lot of these kind of sort of slightly more conservative blogs and yeah. he sent me a link to this blog by this chap called hex hector drummond who's right. a former professor turned novelist <laughs> and he's <laughs> written a, he's written a satire called the biscuit factory okay anyway so <laughs> I got read so I sometimes like I sometimes do. I actually on Twitter I'll read some of these people's um uh you know I'll, I'll follow them because I like to have an alternative I like to see what Yeah no that's very wise, yeah. I think one of them's great. a local councillor in Salisbury actually and she's a bit of a global denier, but it's just right. interesting. You I want don't to see what it. the argument is. You yeah. want to see they must yeah, don't get involved, intelligent people just, must have considered this and there must I, be an I argument. Just, I just watched. <clears> but anyway, he dug up this story from a long time ago. Apparently when um roy anderson was a long time ago um uh, roy anderson was at oxford um university so he was professor of zoology at oxford university and there was some promotion committee for sinetra gupta so this is the person who recently published this paper this was a long long time ago so we're talking now back to i don't know something like the year 2000 oh but basically you, but those but those 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 grudges hold then they nick they hold but basically he um he blocked her promotion so he was one of the people who was um blocking her promotion and then he said he then told some other people on the committee that sinetra gupta had had a relationship with the head of a department and that was part of the reason why she was getting promoted wow. anyway 
He was outvoted, but she found out about it and raised legal action. And Professor Roy Anson was found to be in the wrong. So he had to provide, pay her costs of a thousand pounds. He had to release us a statement when he said, I sincerely regret the distress and embarrassment which has caused a review of me making this allegation. I have the highest professional respect for you and your work. So this has gone back a long, long time, but it's wow. interesting that now, you know, this this whole thing has come anyway he released this this blogger um released this story about three days and then it was immediately two or three days later it was taken up by all of the big newspapers so it was in right. the daily mail and then the guardian or anything like that but it's interesting and it creates this narrative that scientists are kind of like really they're like anyone else they're ambitious they're emotive they're yeah. bastards you know they'll knock people Backstab. down and it, it <laughs> This guy was using the narrative to suggest, well, actually, well, the Imperial team, you know, by association, this new guy, Neil Ferguson, who's actually a sound, seems like a really sound guy, you know, yeah. totally. So, but he was arguing by association, mm. there's some kind of like deeply held resentment between these researchers. Everyone's groups. got skeletons in their closet, Nick. Everyone's got <laughs> skeletons in their closet. <laughs> so, so the key question to, to you, Steve, is how objective then are scientists? Can we trust these scientists or is there political machinations which result in one viewpoint being held at the expense of other viewpoints? Do we trust the people who are advising the government? <clears throat> Um, yeah, it's a good question. I suppose so. The, the alternative is to say, well, what what would what would be the alternative if we didn't have scientific advisors? It would be politicians making those decisions. And I think that's. I think we'd all agree that as imperfect as it may be, that you know, the, uh, the current system. I think we'd rather have scientists making scientific decisions. In fact, I saw an interview with Sir David King, which is why I brought it up. He was the chief government uh, science advisor during the Tony Blair, and also. Um, during Gordon Brown's uh, premiership um, and during that time we had the foot and mouth crisis and that he was kind of asked in an interview like how do you compare the kind of current way uh, that the government's handling it versus when you had to go through something and he said it's quite interesting I'm going to paraphrase him but he said something along the lines of when when he was going through it essentially he was in charge so when they had press uh, press um, uh, uh, press releases and when they had interviews with the press he would be the only person there he wouldn't be next to the politician it would just be him talking about his interpretation of the scientific literature out of the time and he was a chemist right so he doesn't really understand you know like i am which is why i know about him so he doesn't necessarily understand the intricacies of epidemiology but you know he understands graphs and understands science and looking at data and you know and uh, using that information to inform your professional decision um and he was saying that that's kind of not it's a little bit less than what's happening this time round. So you're, you know, now it's almost seen like, you know, by, by placing the chief government science advisor next to the, for the sake of argument, the, you know, the chancellor of the exchequer, you're kind of placing the, the you know, one of those people is looking out for kind of political, you know, the, the political aspects of the problem and some of them look at the scientific and you're kind of placing them on a similar pedestal. So I, I think I in general trust scientists. I think it's, they probably, uh, they, they may have some issues, but I think you've got to, they've made, you know, They've got a lot on the line. It takes a long time to train to be this person. You wouldn't throw it away just because you didn't like someone's shoes or they, uh, or yeah. they, they, uh, they, they didn't let you I guess, get promoted. I guess one of the questions is, you know, yeah, you've got to have those scientific advisors advising the government and politicians do that. But it's like, how do they pick them? You know, how do they, because you, you know, what's the, oh, what's right. the reason? You, but, the government and often it's by the, the reason that, people get in those positions of, uh, in advisory roles, it doesn't necessarily make them the best people to be advisors. 
it's almost like you need to be a bit more proactive in, as a politician in seeking out the right people by a bit of do, doing a bit of research. You don't automatically pick no, the political animals. That, yeah, because the political no, animals... Come on, probably, no, come on, think about it. If you've got like, the best scientists, they'd be completely, completely impossible for them to communicate. They would just be like, they'd be so, uh, yeah, I think you need a bit of both of them. You need multiple skills, right? One of them is being able to interpret literature, but it's also about being able to re-communicate that back, uh, particularly in that kind of advisory role. And I think you probably, if you just pick the people that had the highest H index or published the most papers or were the most prolific, they don't necessarily mean they can communicate that effectively. Um, and mm -hmm. probably aren't the best at kind of organizing people, I would venture a hypothesis to. <coughs> Well, we'll find out. Hmm. Nick. Yes, Steve. Um, you know what's finished now? Game of Thrones is finished. We spoke about Game of Thrones before. I've got something about it. I'm so not sorry about it. No, Having only it. watched... I've watched three episodes we and I concluded the, that yeah. it's just like EastEnders, it's except got, in Dungeons & Dragons. It's a soap opera. Yeah, but it's got It's a meandering, it. pointless soap opera. Yeah, I, There I are think, plenty of other places I, you can look at boobs <laughs> if you so desire, rather than sitting through <laughs> endless Dungeons & Dragons. Crap. Sure, and I think the... The, the writing that that may, I think probably made it successful in the first place was definitely not there in the end because uh, George Martin wasn't writing the script. Wasn't he? No, because oh, right. he hasn't even Were you one the of the yet. people who lost their... Lost their... Shitty poos. Shitty people poos. got angry about the last series. Oh. I mean, even I know that, and I didn't, okay. don't even no, like well, it. No, actually, well, it, I don't know if you remember, in it, there's um, in the bit where they have to fight the zombies, or whatever they're called, the White Walkers. Right. They have, um, they have like a... Um, they have a, uh, a weapon against them, which is they call dragon glass, right? Which is like a little crystal that kills them, but whereas normal swords don't, right? right. But anyway, dragon glass is thought to be obsidian. I've got some facts about obsidian, which is a piece of. I think I know what obsidian is. So, well, actually. tell me, what is obsidian? Well, it's a black, glassy volcanic rock. That is very black. Why? Um, People use the word obsidian to sort of, sort of highlight the blackness of something. Yeah, and it's got some really interesting properties, obsidian. Has it? Yeah. So, I don't know anything okay. more about it. So it's called, a, it's called it's called it's from what's called a, a felsic lava, and felsic apparently means the the the, the lava is relatively fast moving, and so what it means is no big crystals or chunks form in it. It basically crystallizes very quickly, so you don't so the crystals so because of that it has some interesting crystal structures, uh, and this. Felsic also means that the, the the mineral content is normally quite light elements, right? So they're all silicates, but you know they contain, um, you know, some more of the lighter elements of the periodic table. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, because it, it's very brittle, um, because it doesn't have these kind of large crystal lattices. It's got like lots of small um, non-uniform crystal lattices. So it forms really sharp edges. Yeah. So it's actually used all the way back. Uh, well, the earliest they can find, which is a bit. Um, is up seven thousand BC. They've got evidence of people like um, like using uh, forming obsidian into sharp edges to cut things. Right? Can you make a sword from it? You can't really make a sword because it can't really. It can't. It's it's too more. It's brittle. more sharp. Yeah. So so it would just crack. It's too brittle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, they uh, they use it today. I thought it was kind of relevant to you. I found this this article. It's called "Ancient Technology in Contemporary Sur uh, Surgery" by Bruce Buck. Um, from the Western Journal of Medicine from 1982, um, but anyway, he um, this 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 whole paper is about them using it uh, for scalpels and evaluating how how because sh apparently it's much sharper than a metal scalpel. 
It goes down to the, there's a there's a electron micrograph of it um, and other papers down to about three nanometers. So it's, tight, it's about ten atoms across. Whoa, that is right? sharp. And if you if you look zoom in on a if you take an electron microscope and, and zoom in on like a normal scalpel blade, right. Actually, when you zoom in, it's quite rough. You think about a scalpel blade being really sharp. But actually, if you zoom in and zoom in, you can see all of the, the polishing marks. And actually, it's not a sh sharp edge. But obsidian, super, super sharp, right? Tight, like imagine the, almost the, sh the sharpest point, one of the sharpest points we know. Silicon, elemental silicon and silicon oxide, you can get sharper. But, but it's very, there's very few naturally occurring compounds that actually get that sharp. Um, so anyway, this, this paper is this gentleman called um, uh, Bruce Buck. He, he works with this guy called uh, Crabtree. And they, um, they, they, they performed surgery on mice. Um, and then watch them heal. Um, and they cut them open with a surgical scalpel blade and one made of oh, obsidian. Nice. And then they compared how quickly uh, they recover. And actually, the obsidian one, they recover a little bit quicker. Uh, oh, but really? It's, but because it's, not, it's, because like it's sharp. less traumatic. Well, that, that's the argument, is that the, the, the scale, because it's so sharp. You can, yeah. you can buy obsidian scalpel blades today, um, but you just can't use them on humans. They're not approved for human use. No, because you probably um, get a bit of chunk left in you. Because well, that's it's the, that would be the argument, but actually they didn't find any evidence. Really? That. No, that, that, that is the typical... Because so you brittle. get those ceramic knives, don't you, in the yeah. kitchen sometimes? Yeah, but they're, comp they're composite material, I yeah, think. Yeah. You know, they're, just, they're basically just baked. That's interesting. So that's how you can cut things, especially zombies, with a piece of volcano. Exactly right. <laughs> they also use it... Um, so what, what other uses do you think you might need of something being really sharp in your kind of everyday life? Um, I mean, it's heavy, so they use it for like plinths and things like that sometimes. But there's another thing, really expensive area of um, record player. Exactly right. Really? So you can buy it. So te Technics had a se had a um, series of um, styluses Needles. in the 70s, which apparently are like gold dust. If you've got one, they're worth hundreds Ooh. and that, nearly thousands of pounds. Uh, where they I'll just have take to have a, a tiny dig around. Yeah, check uh, if I've got one. But <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, Obviously dragon glass. Nick. Steve. I want to talk to you about my dog. The mutant. <laughs> it's not a mutant. I love my dog so much. I've never loved anything as apart from a robot uh, uh, as much. I, I, I like your dog too, Steve. Like, it's a I, beautiful dog. So I look at my dog lovingly quite Do often. And, and I, the other day I was playing with her and um, there was a noise on the TV that came. We have to have something on the TV in the background. Oh, yeah. And she responds to the noise, right? Yeah, so, yeah. so particularly noises of other animals. And Squeaky actually, noises. And, if, and if, you've got, if you've got an Alexa, I know you don't have any of those smart things, but you can ask Alexa to meow or I like or to push buttons to, and speak to yeah, robots. Um, but when you speak to the robot and say, make a noise like a pig, it then like oinks. Yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. And then the dog like... Alexa, yeah. squeal like a pig. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, then, um, and then all of the dog like hears it and gets all excited. But anyway, I was like wondering, I was like, well... You know this that quite often people say that dogs can't see TV because it's two dimensional. Is that a myth? Do you know what it is? I had a little what? look into it. What? Right. So I was like, why is it? Right. And actually, it's nothing to do with the dimensionality. But what it is, is that, or it was proposed, is that dogs um, see at a faster refresh rate than us. They see roughly about seventy-five hertz. Right. What? How many hertz do we see? It depends, but on the order of twenty-five to fifty. So just for people yeah. out there, it means so, so that the, like the, it's kind of like. So the picture on your, ca on your on your TV is basically twenty-five pictures being shown one after the other a second, right? So yeah. So stat but each so individual picture that, is, that, is that's static. That's what hertz means. Yeah, that's per the number second. of pictures per second, or the number of something per exactly. second. Exactly. And so what so happens in like twenty-five hertz is twenty-five frames per second. Yeah, and actually we can see a bit faster than that, right? Which okay. is why I don't know if you've ever been some. some so TVs we see it about fifty frames. Forty-five per second. to fifty, yeah, something like All right, that. So we see frames twice 
So exactly on a TV. So so you know, I don't know if you've ever seen it. Some TVs you have, you look at them, and it looks like it has that kind of soap opera effect where everything looks yeah, a bit yeah, smooth. Blurry. What they're doing there is they're interpolating in time. They're doubling the number of frames in time. Right, right, so right. they're saying like, I've got frame one, I've got frame two, and I'm going to put a fake one in the middle yeah, yeah, that's yeah. similar. And so it has this feeling of smoothing well, things out. Well, in films, in time. actually, when you go to the pictures in films, you see blurriness when things the camera pans. Exactly, and that's because but you don't often see that on your TV. You, you usually see it in the cinema. Maybe there's something different going but, on. There. But anyway for dogs they see faster right, right. So, so for a dog's point of view what it's seeing is that flat image for an extended period of time nothing flat image nothing you know so it looks flickery oh right, right. To a, so to a TV to a dog looks flickery either looks flickery. So you could easily easily test this right by just doing TV at 10 frames per second exactly well that's exactly what they do and so, so if you get up to about 120 hertz for a dog Right, yeah. Which TVs can now do, right? So if you get some yeah, of, yeah. a lot of the gaming people, people that like play computer games and things, Much they always want frame faster rates. frame rates because they got to try and kill people. And dogs can watch them TV. They're starting to be able to see them. Gaming dogs, isn't that exciting? <laughs> you know, it's the World Gaming Championships. Oh no, World Fortnite Championships really? this week. I bet there's a lot of a lot of. There's a lot they of should the get line. a couple of dogs. They should. But do you know what? Pity they haven't got opposable I, thumbs. I started looking into they this. They won't be able to push like, the button. Well, how do you know this? How do you measure the refresh rate of a dog's eye? Right, and actually, there's not that much out there. There's loads of articles with these banding these numbers about of about 120 hertz and 75 hertz, but there's not much. Peer so people literature. just don't know. I don't think anyone knows. I couldn't find it. But how do they know about the thing with the dog that you've just described? Then? But they're just making it lo- up. There's lots of information. So this is a hypothesis. There's lots of information with those, unproven. Those specific numbers. So we're about. putting that on the unproven shelf. Yeah. As a, I, I spent about you could, half an hour trying to scour the. Scientific you could test this with your dog just by speeding up and slowing down your. My TV doesn't change that fast. Oh, yeah. That's the trouble. I need to buy a bigger TV. This is Postdoc Soapbox. Students are our future. They are also a danger to themselves and others. My student once tried centrifuging one liter of cells into 50 mil tubes. There's a student in our lab who says all her thoughts out loud. Literally all of them. I swear her internal monologue is completely external. I watched my students spend a solid six or seven minutes trying to put on a pair of latex gloves. Thank God he's since decided to be a computational biologist. One student in our lab has figured out the best way to antagonize the others. He points out any time they leave before 6 p.m. I think he gets off on the guilt and frustration. Good vibes all round. A student in my lab poured his reaction and then some acid down the same sink. It made hydrogen cyanide in the pipes. We couldn't use the lab for two days. The lab was extra quiet one day. It turned out the students had decided to have a pizza eating contest instead of working. We named one of our students Aquaman. He flooded the lab. Twice. My students assigned a Pokemon to each lab member to represent their personality. They made me Magikarp, the most pathetic Pokemon of all. I am their professor. Ah, this is another postdoc. So we haven't heard this one before. Rather than complaining up, they're complaining down. <laughs> we can join in with that one. I like one. the latex gloves ones. That's yeah. a funny one. I like the idea of watching someone inept look without them noticing you there. <laughs> and they'll be there just like... <laughs> like someone sort of walking continuously, like trying to pull a push door, that sort of thing. <laughs> just continuously. Yeah, look, particularly if you can see it coming. Like, hang on a sec. Look, this one's going to be good. I, I, uh, I've been there, though. I remember my, uh, my lab partner when I was an undergraduate, Sarah. Partly she your partner? My lab partner. Mm. Didn't you have so a lab just, partner? you just had... Yeah, we did experiments together. 
okay. <laughs> what sort of experiment, Steve? What chemistry experiment? Complicated one. No. You see, partner. Why? Yes. You wouldn't say someone's a partner in your lab. Yeah, a lab, lab partner. partner. Yeah. Lab partner. Yeah, yeah, as an undergrad, you're stuck with one other person yeah, and you do you a get series paired of up. experiments together all the way through your undergraduate. Oh, I wouldn't call that a lab partner. What well, would you call it? Like a kind partner of supervisor or something? No, no, no. no, they're, no, no, they're, no. they're also a student. The students Two do students. stuff in pairs because yeah. that way things that would normally take them six hours can take them three hours. Oh. Oh, like a partner. <laughs> Can you see what I have to work with? Can you imagine having to try and communicate this person? A partner? Yes. Well, I didn't do that sort of thing in the lab. No. I didn't, I didn't have a partner. No? Is it back in the good old days? Maybe you did, but it was just the person who you were next to. You did the... Yeah, but you did it together, didn't you? something onto a bit of intestine and it contracted or something. That sort of thing. Well, we didn't do those experiments in chemistry. But, but yeah. you get the idea. But yeah. Oh, right. Probably They'd be so. a partner. Yeah. So anyway. Oh, yeah, I think I remember who that was now. <laughs> It's like it's like therapy for Nick, the aggression. <laughs> it's so the long ago. I can't yeah. remember it. Most those parts of my brain have atrophied. Your yeah. lab partner is probably probably listening to this and is sort of heartbroken How that could you, you don't forget me. I can almost guarantee that they're not listening <laughs> to this. Anyway, back to Sarah. So I remember once we do these series of experiments. Oh god, I thought you were talking about anyway, carry on. <laughs> Sorry, carry on. <laughs> what? Nothing. Carry on. I just that makes me sound anyway. Uh, I remember we did these series of um, uh, extractions in chemistry. So yeah. in chemistry, we quite did you ever flirt with Sarah? <laughs> yeah, no, she was like a little sister to me. Oh, yeah, she's married now. Oh, is she? Yeah, you, I can. You look. There's a look of distant sorrow in your eyes. Yeah, I don't, I don't see her enough. Okay, she lives in another country. Oh, that's nice. Anyway, um, <laughs> it's not really relevant. But you're obviously still following it's like her a progress. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, hi, Susan. Sarah. Sarah. <laughs> got something for Susan um yeah uh anyway we're doing these uh aqueous uh, and uh, organic extractions right? so, so in chemistry I try, I try and make it about science and it just wants to take it into the gutter um in chemistry it's not in the gutter it's this romance man it's <laughs> beautiful no. um yeah so in, we're doing these uh, series of organic and uh, aqueous extractions so in chemistry like solvent uh, chemicals can be more soluble in uh, like fatty solvents like oils but also in water and you use that as a way of being able to purify compounds and you use that a thing called a separating funnel have you ever seen a separating funnel if you ever see these um it's like a big uh, pear-shaped piece of glass with a tap at the bottom um, and you use it to kind of shake up uh, your your mixture of solutions and then you wait for them to for the layers to separate like oil and water and then the little tap allows you to to like uh, tap off either the, bot the bottom bit of those two layers and then you either keep that or throw that away. Mm. Anyway, it's a series of extractions to do this. It takes like all day to do it. And then, but you have to remember, it's quite, you have to keep your brain in, in gear because you have to remember, is my compound in the aqueous phase or in the organic phase? Because what you don't want to do is do all these series of extractions and then just pour it down the sink. Mm. Sarah poured it straight down oh. the sink. Mm. No. That's why you remember Sarah. Yeah, so yeah. she came to me once. That's she, why you're not married now. And then she came up to me and she was like, Steve, it's all gone wrong. <laughs> It's all gone wrong. I really fell for her that day. Like, felt for her, not fell for her. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, wherever you are, Sarah, I love you.
Bunsen. Dolly. Internal. Why do we need? Petri. Oscar. Isaac. Transplanting. I haven't. I don't know. I don't think I've ever spoken to you remotely. You've always been in my close vicinity, so it's nice to finally chat to you. Well, I'm back in my, I'm back in my house in Winsbury, Roy. How are you enjoying being in lockdown, Brian? It's hard, mate. It's hard. There's no football on at the moment. Yeah, it's tough. The walls are on. You can't go down to the canal. I was in Europe, and now I don't know what's going to happen. They've been in Europe first time for years. Yeah. And now football says they got to finish, mate. So I don't no. know what I'm going to do. Oh, do you know what? I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry about Brian. Have you enjoyed the last season of The Science Shed? It's season three. I love that. I love yeah, the new girl. You, yeah. you keeping it? No, well, she just left. She didn't want to stay anymore. But well, she... I can't blame her to say, to be honest with you, mate. Because <laughs> she's a right couple in my bed, say you. I know. We're very lucky to have her. She did a fantastic job and we wish her all the best in the future. I love those quizzes. Yeah, you like them, huh? I love them, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, she told me there was a quiz about chemistry and you deliberately lost the end of it because you lost to Nick. I, don't, I, I couldn't confirm or deny that. Oh, that's what she told me. Okay, well, she's, I can't confirm or deny that. Um, well, Brian, if people like the Science Shed, like yourself, um, they can listen to it uh, on SoundCloud or iTunes. You can find us on Twitter. Oh. Oh. I'm at Steve the Chemist. Uh, oh, yeah. Nick, Nick is at the Evans Lab. And, right. and Nick and Eleanor is at Eleanor. Um, yeah, and we're going to be away, we're going to be away for a while now. Where we go back into the top secret science shed development kitchens. Can't you do like a podcast about co, like a bit of a digest? You know, when you kind of summarise all the things to do with all of the coronavirus. Because I want to learn right. a bit more about it. You want a you want a coronavirus uh, summary one, but not for yeah, a while. Maybe maybe someone who knows what they're talking about rather yeah, than you. That's what we tell you what we should do. Let's go and find somebody who knows what they're talking about rather than Nick and myself, who clearly don't. Thank and then we'll chat to them. That's awesome, right? Great. Yeah. Anyway, I've got to go. Bye.